The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Today is a very special day. Today, English-speaking Christians all over the world are celebrating something they call Easter. Most everyone else calls this holiday by some variant of the word Pashka, which translates from the Hebrew word Passover. So we're really, the English-speaking people are the only ones who use that word, the E word. Yeah, (laughs) I don't even like to say it, and you'll understand why in a minute. You know, most Christians don't seem to understand that the name Easter is derived from a pagan spring fertility deity that appears variously as Easter, the Saxon goddess of the dawn with a hare's head, and that's where the whole idea of Easter bunny came from, Ishtar from Nineveh, introduced into Britain with the Druids, Ashtarte, the queen of heaven from Babylon, whose worship involves sexual depravity, the egg figures prominently in the worship of Astarte, because she is said to have sprung from an egg which fell from heaven into the Euphrates. Even the fast of Lent, which was introduced in the 6th century, was borrowed from Babylon. A similar fast was observed by the Egyptians in the commemoration of Osiris. So, I really hate to break it to you, but Easter is a pagan holiday. Okay? Even the name comes from a pagan god. Now, keep that in mind as I read to you God's command to Israel. Now, concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard. Do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. So, you know, this was also repeated in the end of Joshua. God told the children of Israel this. Now, Yahweh tells Israel not to mention, not to speak, not to mention the name of foreign gods, but the church has a celebration that's named after a pagan god. What's Christian about Easter? Nothing. It's a pagan holiday. There's nothing about you. People say, well, it's about the resurrection. Really? What are the baskets and eggs and bunnies? How do all those deal with the resurrection? Easter is never mentioned by our Lord or the apostles, nor was it ever observed by the early church. Now, today is an important day, I believe, for believers. But it has nothing to do with colored eggs. It has nothing to do with bunnies or baskets or pagan gods. It is about the resurrection of Christ. And this resurrection was foretold back in the time of Moses, some 1,600 years before it happened. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. The resurrection was foretold in the feasts of Yahweh. There are seven feasts, seven being the number of completion. And these seven feasts represent, and they typify the sequence, the timing, the significance of the major events of our Lord's redemptive career. So these seven feasts are literally acted out prophecies to Israel on what Yahweh was going to do in the future to redeem them. 
It was like a play they were putting on year after year to show what God was going to do. And as they rehearsed these year after year at the appointed times, they were literally seeing a picture of Yahweh and his complete redemption. Leviticus 23, 4 and 5 says, These are the appointed times of Yahweh. Holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Now Passover occurs, it's the first of the feasts. It occurs in the spring of the year on the 14th day of the Hebrew month, Nisan. Which will be March or April for us. This past Monday was Passover. At su- last Monday at sundown began Passover. And Passover is a type, or it's a picture of something much greater. It pictured the redemption of God's elect through the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God. The Lord Yeshua. In the evening, on the 14th of Nisan, at exactly 3 p.m., the Passover lamb was to be killed. And 1,600 years after the Passover was instituted, Yeshua, our lamb, was killed on the very same day at the very same time as the Passover lamb. The 14th of Nisan at 3 p.m. And like a lamb, Yeshua is without spot or blemish. 1 Peter 1.19 He had none of his bones broken. John 19.33 The lamb was a type and Yeshua is the anti-type. So he fulfilled this picture. Israel for 1,600 years is, is going through the motions of this Passover and you, the Lord comes and he dies on that very day. And they still don't get it. The second feast is in 23.6 of Leviticus. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there is to be a feast of unleavened bread. To Yahweh, for seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So the feast of unleavened bread, Passover takes place on the 14th. The feast of unleavened bread takes place on the 15th of Nisan, and it lasts for seven days. Now, most people try to make this a picture of the burial of Christ. You know, that way you've got Passover picturing his death, unleavened bread picturing his burial, but first fruits is picturing, and then first fruits picturing the resurrection. But I don't think that's correct because unleavened bread can't picture his burial because he wasn't buried on the feast of unleavened bread. So that just wouldn't work out at all. Okay. Speaking of our the dead body of our Lord, Luke writes this, and he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain, and it was the presentation day. And the Sabbath was about to begin. So the Lord was put in the grave on the presentation day. That was the Passover. That was the 14th of Nisan. So Yeshua was buried on the same day that he was killed. Passover. He was put in the earth before the sun set on the 14th of Nisan. Unleavened bread starts on the 15th of Nisan. And it pictures deliverance. Because the children of Israel, after the Passover on the 14th, on the 15th, They left Egypt, first day of unleavened bread, and they crossed the Red Sea by the end of the seventh-day feast. So unleavened bread is a seven-day feast picturing a perfect redemption. Now, the third feast, this brings us to what we're all about today, and that's the Feast of first fruits. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest he shall wave the sheaf before Yahweh for you to be accepted on the day after the Sabbath the priest shall wave it 
So the word first fruits here is from the Hebrew word rashi, which is the same word used in Genesis 1.1, translated as beginning. In Genesis 1.1, the word is bereshit because it's in beginning. This is rashit, beginning. It came to be used for the beginning of an event, but it literally means summit or the choicest of the choice or the best. Now, let me ask you this. What date is the feast of first fruits to take place on? Passover was to take place on the 14th. The Bible tells us that. Unleavened bread was to take place on the 15th. The Bible tells us that. What date's first fruits? There's no date given in the text. The inspired text says this, on the day after the Sabbath. Now, I think there's a reason there's no date there. See, a lot of scholars say, well, this took place on the 16th. Well, then why didn't he just put the 16th in there? They got the other dates. Why is there no date for this feast? See, they take the Sabbath here to refer to the Sabbath of the first day of unleavened bread. The first day of unleavened bread was a Sabbath. So if this was after that, this would be the 16th. But if that was true, I think it would just said the 16th. I believe the Sabbath referred to here is the weekly Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. And there is no date given in Scripture for the Feast of first fruits because it's always on the day after the Sabbath, which would be Sunday. No matter what date everything else falls on, no matter what day anything else happens, first fruits is always on a Sunday. There's a reason for that. So the date changes from year to year, but it's always Sunday. It's always on Sunday that we celebrate resurrection. It was always, first fruits always fell on a Sunday. As to the significance of first fruits, as with the other feasts, I don't think there's a lot of room for doubt or speculation. It represents Christ's resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23, Paul says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, that's Adam, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. So Christ is the first fruits. See, on one particular morning, on the first day of the week, the Feast of First Fruits were being waved before the altar in the temple. And that particular morning, some women were also heading to an empty tomb. 1,600 years before Christ's resurrection, Yahweh predicted in type and shadow that Yeshua would be crucified on the 14th of Nisan and would rise from the dead three days later on the first day of the week. And it happened exactly as God said it would. You know, I think prophecy proves the truthfulness of the Bible. God said the things in this word that, that came true that it's just unbelievable. You know, no other book in the world contains this kind of specific prophecies found all throughout the pages of Scripture. So today is the Jewish feast of first fruits. It is the day that Christ was raised from the dead. The Jews celebrated this year after year. Well, now this feast is complete. A lot of Christians try to celebrate these feasts today, and I don't think there's a problem with that, but you have to understand it's a fulfilled feast. Okay? We're, it's not, not, not anticipating anything. And so we call today Resurrection Sunday. 
Yeshua not, not only defeated death for himself, and this is where we get involved, and this is what's exciting to us. He came out of the grave. He also promises resurrection life to all who put their trust in him. John 11, 25 through 27 says, Yeshua said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes in to the world. Now, in verse 26, Yeshua asked, do you believe this? What is this? Well, it's what he claimed of himself. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. It's the statement about himself. That he is the resurrection and the life. But that's not all. He asked her to believe. Yeshua is saying, basically saying, I guarantee eternal life to everyone who trusts in me. See, to believe that Yeshua is the Christ is in essence to believe that he is the guarantor of eternal life to everyone trusts in him. Today, people trust in everything but Christ. And it's not trusting Christ plus something else. It's trusting Christ and Christ alone. That's the only way anybody will ever get to heaven. The only way anybody will ever be redeemed is to place their trust in Christ. Not what you do, not what church you go to, not religious observance you've been part of, but Christ alone. And because of the resurrection, because Christ came out of the grave, these words carry weight they never would have otherwise. If he had remained in the grave, the question of whether or not he was the only way to heaven would be a matter of debate, you know? But the resurrection answers the question and ends the argument once for all. Yeshua has the power over death. So I guess that means he is everything he claimed to be. Now notice what Yeshua is saying. He says, he who believes in me shall live. Now, he's talking about spiritually there. You're going to live spiritually if you believe in me, even if he dies physically. And everyone who lives physically and believes in me shall never die spiritually. Now, two categories are being discussed here. Those who would die before the resurrection. He believes in me, shall live spiritually. He shall live spiritually. It's a future tense. You're going to live spiritually even though you physically are going to die All right, before the resurrection. And then the other category is the one who lives after the resurrection. They live. They're physically alive after the resurrection. They believe in him. Spirit, they will never die spiritually. So, which category are we in? Are we living pre-resurrection or post-resurrection? Now, I guess that depends on who you ask, okay? Because different people have different answers on that. But in order to answer the question, we need to know what exactly is meant by the resurrection. And when was the resurrection supposed to happen? Because the Bible tells us those things. But we have to know that first. Now, the traditional view that is held by most of the church is this. When a believer dies, their body goes into the grave, and their spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord. They're in this disembodied state waiting the resurrection at the end of time. They're in a disembodied state just waiting. Then at the end of time, the Lord returns. See, here's what we have to understand. The second coming of Christ, the resurrection, and the judgment are synchronous events. They all happen together. They all happen at the same time. 
So we can figure out when one happens, we'll understand when the rest of them happen. All right? At the end of time, the Lord returns. He resurrects all the dead, decaying bodies of the dead saints. He puts them all back together. And then he changes the physically resurrected bodies into spiritual, immortal bodies like Christ. Does that sound like what you've heard, what you've been taught? That's basically what the church teaches about resurrection. But it's not what the Bible teaches about resurrection. In order to understand resurrection, we need to understand the when of the resurrection. And I think that's easy to to determine because Paul, during his trial before Felix, he's giving a defense before Felix and he says this, but this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that's written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Now, do you see the when of the resurrection in that verse? No, you don't, because the New American Standard obscures it. But let's look at Young's living, okay? Young's living gets this right, all right? Verse 15, having hope toward God, which they themselves also wait for, that there is about to be a rising again from the dead. Both of the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, the words shall certainly in the New American are the Greek word mellow. And whenever you see mellow in the present active indicative, and when it's combined with an infinitive, it's consistently translated about to. Now, Paul told, listen, Paul told the first century audience, there's about to be a resurrection. The Greek word mellow means about to. But here's what's interesting. It's never translated that way in the major translations. Why? They know it. In Vine's Expository Dictionary of Greek Words on page 1038, Vine shows mellow's primary meaning to be about to be. About to happen. Thayer's Greek Lexicon on page 396 defines mellow as to be about to do anything. To be on the point of of doing or suffering something. Aren't Gingrich Bauer's English-Greek lexicon defines mellow as be on the point of, about to. There are 110 places where mellow is used in the Greek New Testament, and many places by the context it can be seen very clearly that it's talking about something that is about to happen. Biblically, the resurrection, Paul, now Paul's not talking to you, He's not talking to me. He's talking to Felix, okay? He's talking to Tertullius. He's talking to the elders, and he says, there's about to be a resurrection. Now, he meant about to be in 2,000 years, right? Does that make about to be have any meaning at all? About to mean means it's something that's going to take place soon. So if the resurrection was about to be, when was the parousia to take place? Remember, there's synchronous events. Well, look at Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Is going here is the Greek word mellow. And Vine translates mellow here as the Son of Man is about to come. This verse is talking about the second coming and the judgment. At His coming, He will recompense every man. That's judgment. 
And it says he's about to come. So how soon would that be? Well, the next verse tells us how soon it is. It makes it very specific. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Who is the you here? I say to you. Is that us? He's talking to his disciples. The living, breathing men he's with. And he says to his disciples, I'm saying to you, there's some of those who are standing here. In other words, some of you disciples that are standing right here, you're not going to die before you see the second coming. Now that kind of narrows it down. He uses mellow, it's about to happen, then he says, you're going to see it. If we're going to understand what he's saying here, we have to apply a hermeneutical principle of audience relevance. And that is to ask, who's he talking to? He's talking to Felix, Ananias, Tertullius, and the elders. And Paul told them, not us, there's about to be a resurrection. So if the timing of the resurrection is soon, what's that tell us about the nature? It tells us that it must be spiritual because time defines nature. Now, let's back up a second. Verse 28 there. All right, so he's talking to disciples. Some of you are going to be here when I come back. All right, we got a couple choices there, right? Either the Lord returned in their lifetime or there's still some disciples alive today. 2,000-year-old gentleman, or the Lord lied. I mean, because he said he was going to do that. So you've you got to pick one of those choices. Now, I had the discussion with the man who came down here from Quantico, from the Marine Corps base in Quantico. He taught logic at the Marine Corps base. And so I said, you know, I presented him these three options, and he goes, I think there's still disciples alive today. And I'm like, Really? You think there's some 2,000-year-old guys walking around waiting for the second coming? He said, yes, I think so. I'm like, okay, that's an option. <laughs> you know, that is an option from this text, but I don't think it's a good option. Because if you connect it with verse 27 that uses mellow, it's about to happen. You can't make about to be 22,000 years. It just doesn't really fit in there all that well. All right? So it's soon. It's got to be spiritual. Time defines nature. Now, something else that we need to understand is that when Paul talked about the resurrection, Paul taught that the resurrection was the hope of Israel. Okay? Look at Acts 26, 6 through 8. Now, I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our 12 tribes hope to obtain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused of the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? See, the hope of Israel was the resurrection. The word resurrection doesn't appear in the Hebrew Scriptures, but the concept does. Look at Daniel. He says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. That's resurrection. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So some are going to sleep and they're, they're going to awake at a time. Now look at verse 13. He says, but as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end 
of the age. So they're going to rise again, and he tells us when the resurrection is going to happen. It's going to happen at the end of the age. Now, Daniel was Jewish. And the age he's talking about is the Jewish age, the old covenant age. This is what the Jews believe. We see this in Martha's response to Yeshua. Yeshua said to her, your brother will rise again. Remember Lazarus, he's dead. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. How did she know that? Because it was taught through the Hebrew scriptures. The resurrection happened at the end of the Jewish old covenant age. Now, let's, let's look at what the, the Bible has to say about resurrection. It's interesting to note that the Bible never uses these terms. Okay? Resurrection body. You're not going to find that in the scripture. Well, some new translations. might. Resurrection of the body. Physical resurrection. Those are not terms the Bible uses. The church uses those terms quite often, but the Bible doesn't. The phrase the Bible does use are these terms. The resurrection of the dead and the resurrection from the dead. So in order to understand resurrection, you have to understand death. Resurrection is a resurrection from the dead. And the death that man needs to be resurrected from is spiritual. When Adam sinned, he died spiritually. Not physically. And man's problem is spiritual death. What spiritual death is, is separation from God. And because of Adam's sin, we are all born dead, separated from God. But through Yeshua came the resurrection from the dead. Yeshua came to restore what Adam lost, which was fellowship with God. He came to redeem man from death, to resurrection man, resurrect man back into the presence of God. And the Bible is God's book about his plan to restore the spiritual union of his creation. Resurrection is not about bringing physical bodies out of the grave. It's about restoring man to the presence of God. Now, as a general rule, believers didn't go to heaven prior to the completion of Yeshua's messianic work. There were a few exceptions. But prior to the completion of Yeshua's messianic work, people who died went to a holding place of the dead and they awaited the atoning work of Christ, the resurrection of the dead. In the Tanakh, the Hebrew word for where they went prior to resurrection is called Sheol. In the New Testament, the Greek word is Hades. What it amounted to was a waiting area, basically, for the dead. All right, so in the Old Covenant, when someone died, they didn't go to heaven. They went to Sheol. Now, the Tanakh uses the word Sheol to refer to a place in the depths of the earth. There's a lot of references that go with what I'm going to say here, but I'm not going to re read them all. They'll be in the notes, so you want to get these references, get the notes, okay? Uh, the expression go down or brought down are used 20 times in connection with Sheol. The depths of Sheol are mentioned six times. Four times Sheol is described as the furthest point from heaven. Often Sheol is parallel with the pit. Nine times it's parallel with death. Sheol is described in terms of overwhelming floods, water, or waves. Sometimes Sheol is pictured as a hunter setting snares for its victim, binding them with cords, snatching them from the land of the living. Sheol is a prison with bars. It's a place of no return. People go to Sheol alive. Now, in Jewish tradition, it was known as Abraham's bosom. 
since at death the faithful Israelite was said to be gathered into his fathers. Whatever it was called, it was not heaven. Okay? Acts 2.29 says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. For it was not David who ascended into heaven. Okay, you get that? David was dead. David didn't go to heaven. But he had a promise that he someday would. God had promised to redeem his people from the grave. Hosea 13, 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? See, all the people who died, all believers and unbelievers, everybody goes to Sheol, a waiting place. And now the, the question here, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. And then in Psalm 49, 15, it says, But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, Selah. These verses express hope that God will provide salvation beyond the grave. One of the few references in the Tanakh to life after death. These verses anticipate the clear New Testament teaching of life after death. Eternal life and salvation by God. Now, all people were believed to go to Sheol when they died. Psalm 89, 48. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. So, to be taken out of Sheol and brought into the presence of the Lord is what the Bible calls resurrection. Resurrection has nothing to do with physical bodies coming out of graves. Daniel spoke of this in verse 2, he says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. According to the Bible, when was the resurrection to take place? Well, the scriptures testify that the time of the resurrection was to be at the end of the old covenant age. Daniel twelve thirteen. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. We know this happened in AD 70. He's talking about the end of the Jewish age, the, de- the end of the old covenant age that happened in AD 70 with the destruction of Jewish temple. The Jewish temple was shut down. Judaism was shut down. No more sacrifices. That old covenant was put to rest. And the disciples knew that the fall of the temple and the destruction of the city meant the end of that old covenant. And the inauguration of a new age. The new covenant age. Now since we know the resurrection is past. We know that it was spiritual and not physical. The resurrection of the dead took place at the end of the old covenant. God completely shut it down in AD 70. He made it very clear with the destruction. It wasn't a biological resurrection of dead decayed bodies. It was a release from Sheol of all who had believed in Christ. All who had trusted God. They were taken out of Sheol at that time and they were moved into heaven to be in the presence of God. They were dead. They now had life in the presence of God. And we can see from the teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus several things about the resurrection that the early Christians believed. Look at uh, 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them, Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth. So these two guys are kind of off base here. What, what were they teaching wrong? 
Well, they were saying that the resurrection has already taken place. Oh, that's what I say. But I'm saying it 2,000 years later. See, they said it and the resurrection hadn't happened yet. But here's what I want you to see here. The early Christians must have believed that the resurrection would be spiritual and therefore not subject to confirmation by any physical evidence. If the early Christians had believed that the resurrection would involve physical bodies coming out of the graves as taught today, how many of these inflatists couldn't have convinced anybody it already happened? They're saying the resurrection took place. And then it said, nope, graves are still all there. So they must have been teaching something spiritual because they were people were being confused by their teaching. They also must have believed that life on earth would go on after the resurrection with no material change. Because most Christians today believe once the resurrection happens and you know all this world gets blown up or burned up and we go to the new heavens and new earth and it's all new and everything starts over. Well, how could they teach that if they believe that? They didn't believe it would be a renovated planet earth as a consequence of the resurrection. They taught it was a spiritual event. And so they could teach it was past and people were confused. They'd have never been able to teach this. No one would have paid any attention to them if they thought, if people thought it was physical. Now, the reason they're teaching that the resurrection had passed was overthrowing the faith of some was because it postulated a consummation of the spiritual kingdom while the earthly temple in Jerusalem still stood. And see, this was a mixture of law and grace. This destroyed the faith of some by making the works of the law part of the new covenant. And that didn't work. The temple's still standing. The resurrection can't have taken place yet. It has to happen at the end of the age. And if the temple and all the priesthood and everything still exists, then there's a problem there. So it was overthrowing the faith of some. So the resurrection that Paul said was about to happen was a spiritual regathering of God's covenant people. The resurrection of the dead that took place at the end of the old covenant in AD 70 was not a biological resurrection of dead decaying bodies. It was a release from Sheol of all who had been waiting through the centuries to be united with God in the heavenly kingdom. They were no longer separate from God, dead. They were now in his presence, which is alive. So, what about us? I mean, what about believers who live since AD 70? Do we get resurrected? Well, let's go back to Yeshua's words to Martha. He who believes in me that's the old covenant believer, will live, in the future tense, will live spiritually, even if he dies physically. So if this believer dies before the resurrection, don't worry, they'll be resurrected. On the other side of it, everyone who lives, that's physically live past the resurrection, and they believe in me, that's a new covenant believer, will never die spiritually. Do you believe this? So you got two categories of believer being discussed. Those who would die before the resurrection, those who would not. We are living post-resurrection. We are the ones who live physically and believe in him as new covenant believers and will never spiritually die. We receive a resurrection from the dead when we trust Christ. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 2.1. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Spiritual death is the inability to respond to the things of the Spirit. By saying we're spiritual dead, it means the kind of deadness that requires a resurrection. You need to be resurrected from the dead. Paul goes on in verse 5, it says, And when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him. 
and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Yeshua. The subject of the verb is God in verse 4. Giving life is the only solution here. It's not for God to convict us. It's not for God to woo us or to scare us. He has to give us life. He has to give us life. The phrase made us alive with is one word in the Greek. It's sudzo apoeo. Remember that, okay? I'm going to quiz you on that. It's a first aorist indicative of the double compound verb to make alive. And with, found only here and in Colossians 2.13. The word zo apoeo literally means made us alive. And in scripture, it is used of God giving life. It is used of resurrection. Here, it's talking about a spiritual resurrection. The word used here is sudzoi apoeo, which is zoapoeo with the soon prefix, with a positional association. Listen, and this is, this is really important. I know it's a little technical, but it's important that we understand that we believers were co-resurrected with Christ. Okay, we see the same positional association in Romans 6. Romans 6 says we were co-buried, we were co-crucified, we were co-resurrected with Christ. Because it happened to Christ and we're in union with Christ, what happened to Christ happened to us. In Colossians 2, we were co-buried, co-raised, co-quickened. And here in Ephesians, we were co-quickened, co-raised, co-seated with Christ in the heavenly places. These all utilize the soon or co-prefix and they all demand a positional stance of the believer with the reality of Christ. What happened to Christ? Happened to us. If we trust in Him. Paul is stressing the believer's union with Christ. You see, we needed a new union because we had Adam as our federal head and we needed a new federal head. We needed to be in Christ and that's what Paul speaks of here. Those who were hopelessly dead in sin received new life through that union with Christ. And we were co-crucified. We were co-buried and we were co-raised with Christ. Please get this, believers. We were dead. And God gave us life. He gave us spiritual life, which is resurrection from our state of spiritual death. So we have eternal life and we will never die spiritually. And therefore, we don't need a resurrection. We've already been resurrected from the dead. At death, our bodies go to dust and we go immediately into heaven. Now, under the new covenant, there is no death, spiritually speaking. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then we'll be about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who has given us victory through our Lord Yeshua the Christ. What is sown perishable, he says, is raised imperishable. These are fascinating terms. These are terms used by Philo and other Jews to describe the gods. The gods are imperishable. The Stoics use that language to talk about pneumatic beings, spirit beings. They're imperishable. Paul is saying, believers, we're going to be like the gods. We're going to be imperishable. Back to our text in John 11. So the person who believes in me, he's referring to the old covenant believer, will live spiritually at the resurrection, even though he dies physically. And then for us, 
Everyone who lives past the resurrection physically and believes in me, the new covenant believer, will never die. We have resurrected life. We will never die. The resurrection was the hope of Israel was a one-time event in which the old covenant saints were brought out of Hades, which was spiritual death, separation from God, and resurrected in the presence of Yahweh, which is life. New covenant believers put on immortality at AD 70. Those of us who trusted Christ post AD 70 put on immortality when we trust Christ. As believers, we live in the presence of God. That's the glory of the new covenant. God says, I will dwell with them and be among them. We don't have to go to a temple. We are not separated from God in any way. As we trust in Him, we become one with Him. We have union with Christ. And we have access 24-7 to God. The Old Covenant never enjoyed that reality. The Old Covenant went to the house of God with their sacrifice in fear and trembling. Because if you messed up, you died. Okay? And that's a little bit scary. Alright? But for us, Christ has opened the way. We are in union with Him. We're co-buried, co-dead, co-raised. It's this beautiful relationship. One with Christ. As believers, we live in His presence. And when we die... I believe we are given a spiritual body and we move into the spiritual realm. We're going to put on the body of the gods. And we don't need another resurrection. So resurrection is about Christ fixing the problem of man's separation with God. All through the Old Covenant, those people had the hope that they would someday be raised out of the grave. And everybody prior to Christ died, went to Sheol. At 8070, Christ returned, took the dead saints into the presence of God, where now they have life. And from that point on, all who trust in Him have eternal life. But again, it is, it is all about trusting Christ. And today, the, the church has turned so much of this into religion, where you have to do this, and you have to say this, and go the right place, and do the right thing. But the sad thing is that Christ... There's nothing left for us to do. He paid it all, every bit of it. And all you have to do is trust in what He has done. You don't have to add to it. You don't have to, you know, supplement like He didn't quite do it enough. No, it's perfect. It's a perfect redemption. And all He wants us to do is trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning that You fulfilled Israel's hope. You brought them out of the grave of Sheol, you took them into your presence to have life everlasting. And I thank you, Lord, for us who live on the other side of the resurrection, the other side of the second coming, the other side of judgment, that all we have to do is realize who you are to trust in you. And we are given eternal life, resurrection life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your incredible grace. I pray that your people would understand how much you have done, that you have paid it all, Lord. There's nothing left to do but trust you. Thank you, Lord, for a complete, fulfilled redemption. Amen. All right, any questions? <laughs> any other questions? Not a question so much as a, uh, I just skipped over. Um, well, you quoted from Daniel a couple of verses about mm -hmm. the age just just right. Oh yeah, that's that's true. That, that's true. Okay, thank you. Um, 
Yeah, okay. They're bringing things I left out. See, I was trying to cut down, okay? And if you want to complain when I cut down, fine. I'll give you full-blown everything I got, all right? But yeah, Jeff brought out an important fact in Daniel chapter 12 that talks about the resurrection. It says this stuff's going to happen when the power of the holy people has been shattered. What is that? That's the destruction of the temple in AD 70. The holy people are God's Jewish people. When their power is shattered, when the temple, that temple was everything to the Jew. That's where they met with God. That's where God lived. Although he wasn't there because he left back in Ezekiel 11. But they still went there and, you know, carried on. And, and so God said, listen, and the glory didn't come back until Christ showed up at the temple. Then the glory was back. But they rejected him. So God said, just so to make it clear, just so you Jews understand that I'm done with this. Titus came in and destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, killed the Jews, wiped out the priesthood, destroyed all the records. If you're going to have a priesthood, you've got to have records. So there's no priesthood. There never will be another priesthood. And guess what? We're priests. That's right. We are priests. We're the priesthood of believers. We are put. You know, here's what I wish we could grasp. I wish we could get the If you got the significance of this, you'd be yelling, hallelujah, okay? Sons of God in the Old Covenant is a, is a name used of angels, used of other gods. The watchers were called sons of God. In the New Covenant... Believers are called sons of God. That, that is an incredible, incredible thought that God is moving us into the divine council, into his throne room to worship him in that very throne room. Sons of God. Amen. It's a it's a it's a such an incredible concept. Christian. I just I, I think you might have just answered my question is at the end of your sermon you were saying that we'll be like God's and, um, you know, like when Jesus was being tested by, I forget the lawyers, whoever it was, about the man that married, or the woman that married the, all the brothers. Right. Not, yeah. And then he said that you're, miss, you know, you're not going to be like, uh, you're going to be like the angels right. you know, in heaven, so there's not going to be any marriage or anything like that. And so is that is that what you meant by, like, that we will become gods, like in the resurrection. Because like, I guess even going back to Job, when the sons of God came to God and, and Satan was among them, right. and then went up and talked to God, is that, is that like, because I was a little bit, like when you said that, my ears perked, and I was like, what, 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 do, you, what do you mean by that? And, and because there is that one passage in the Gospels, I forget where it is, but it says you'll be like the gods, you know, and I've, all, I've never understood that. That's John 10 you're talking about. We'll get to that in a while in our study of John. <laughs> but yes, I, I mean, this is, this, is, this is hard for people to grasp, the idea, but listen, that's in the Old Covenant, in the Tanakh, sons of God were children of God. They were divine beings. In the New Covenant, we are called sons of God. And didn't Peter say we are partakers of of the divine nature. All right. Yes, I believe, you know, and that here's the promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 15. Takes Abraham out. He says, look at the stars of heaven. Count them if you can. And then he says this. So shall your descendants be like the stars. They viewed the stars as deity. These are gods. Okay. And so he's saying, you are going to be God. You're going to be. And that's what it means to be a son of God. If you're a son of God, you share 
what the Father has. We become deity. We become like the gods. I know that's a, a concept that's hard for us to grasp, but that's what the New Testament teaches. Okay? We, by faith in Christ, have been moved into a divine family, share a divine nature, and I believe someday be given a divine spiritual body to share eternity with. Jeff? How is that different from Mormonism? <laughs> <laughs> it's not even close to Mormonism. Mormonism works their way okay, to that position. They believe if you do this, it, it's got nothing to do with works in Christianity. All right, Christianity is, you know, you're going to be made part of the divine family. And like I said, this is throughout the Old Covenant, New Covenant. That's the promise. Most people hear the promise of Abraham and they think, oh, we're going to have, your, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. He does say that, but he also says, so shall your descendants be. And the idea you're going to be part of the divine family, part of that divine council by faith. Jeff? I've heard people rail that against the divine council view. Right. It sounds like Mormonism. Would it be fair to say that, because when you say we shall be God, it definitely sounds weird. <laughs> I know. Because when you move imperishable and imperishable, it, it was more in relation to like the substance of what you become. We shall be like angels in the fact that we are the same substance of Right. Okay. I, I see what you're saying. And I, there, you know, there's a lot about this that I don't understand. I just, I'm just telling you what the scriptures say. John 1:12. But as many as received him, to them he gave authority to become sons of God, children of God. You know, we have that authority. We become part of his family. I don't know everything that it entails. All right. But I do know this. I'm part of a divine family. All right. And I think. The purpose of the church, the purpose of the believers is to replace the divine council. In other words, to share in the very throne room, to live and dwell in the very throne room of God. Now, I feel like we're just digging the hole deeper because there's so much I can't explain. Okay? But I'm telling you, as sons of God, that means something very significant. Andrew? Uh, I got a couple. Uh, you said that when Jesus returned in AD 70, that those that were faithful uh, were released from Sheol. Right. What about those that were not faithful? Were they released and sent to hell? No, they were, yeah, they were judged at that time. Okay, Daniel talks about the judgment of the righteous and the wicked. They were brought out of Sheol and cast into the lake of fire. Also, That's um, judgment. Relevant to today, now, when Jesus was crucified, That happened to be three days from the day of first fruits. Correct. Sunday. Correct. Now, what is more relevant to his resurrection, the day of first fruits or the Passover? Well, he, you're connected. You, he, he can't be resurrected until he dies. And Passover is his death, okay? Passover is his crucifixion. And it's always, that's the celebrated on the 14th. And the 15th starts on unleavened bread. And then, like, like I said, this week Passover started on Monday. Okay, Monday evening at sundown was Passover. And so here we are, you know, 
five, six days later, and we're celebrating the resurrection. So, but because that floats. But for some reason, God wanted it every, the resurrection is always celebrated on a Sunday. What, you know, people like to argue, why do Christians celebrate on a Sunday? Maybe that's it's just we're celebrating the resurrection, so we do it on Sunday. Okay? Celebrating what God did. It happened on a Sunday. Acts 27 says that they celebrate on, I mean, they met on the first day. Right. They met on the first day of the week. They broke bread and, you know. Sang songs and drums and. Okay, did I try? I know I felt like I was digging deeper instead of climbing out, you know, because <laughs> when you t- when you start talking about being gods, you know, people are like, what does that mean? You know, I don't know all it means. I know that God is my father and I'm his child. Uh, right. Right. Eternal life. Right. All right. That's for sure. We put on imperishability. We don't perish. We'll never die. That's that's what the gods, they don't die, you know. And so we go on and, and because of Christ, it's uh we live in a, in a I, I like what Jeff's saying. Let's just let's take it for that. OK, we're sons of God. We live in a divine divine realm. OK, a realm that, you know, I, we can't begin to understand right now. OK, but at death, you're going to cross from this realm into the divine realm and be an Elohim. Okay, a God, because that's what the Bible says about Samuel. Samuel was dead and the Bible calls him an Elohim because he's now in the spiritual realm. Elohim is a place of residence locator. It means you live in a different realm. So you're going to all live in that realm. And listen, (laughs) yeah, you get a new area code for sure. Listen, God created us to be image bearers. Because he wants us. You know, and this is connected with the idea that, you know, God says, no idols, no idols for me, because man is my representation. See, the idols were simply representation of other gods, where God's representation is us. So when people look at us, guess what they should see? God. So get busy. 